Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so I just want to see if you guys are caffeinated, if you had your coffee or not this morning. You ready? All right. Everybody, look to your neighbor and say, you are a mess. All right, all right, all right. Now, look to yourself and say, I'm a mess. You guys have a lot more fun when you looked at your neighbor and say, you are a mess than you did point at yourself, right? Well, that, that's human nature. We, we, we can actually get really excited or passionate about pointing out someone else's sin, about pointing out something that we think is wrong with them or a fault that we might see in their lives. Matter of fact, a side note is most of the time when you see something in someone else that you don't like, it's because you do it too. Ooh. Some of you guys didn't want to hear that. Oh, ain't talking about me. Stepping on toe. No. It's easier to point out someone else's sin than to acknowledge our own sin. Just like it's easier to receive forgiveness and grace than it is to extend it to someone who has hurt us. You know, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. It's something that we don't deserve. And by that definition, we can also see that in our walk, for us to get that, we might have messed up somewhere. Wrong line. In order to get that grace, we must first acknowledge our own shortcomings. Matter of fact, that's part of the prerequisite to being a Christian and receiving salvation. You can't just say, hey, Jesus, like, I'm ready, but not admit that you're a sinner. First, you have to admit that you're a sinner and say, I'm jacked up, I'm messed up, before you can move on to the next thing to get the grace and forgiveness. You know, turn your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 8. And you know what I love about this book? The 66 books in this one book, this whole book is just one big love letter. It is. If you read it, it has this huge love letter about how God loves people, but he hates sin. He loves people, but he hates sin. Isn't that kind of ironic, though, when we're all sinners? That he loves us even though we are sinners? And every single day, we sin against him? Jesus shows a perfect example of how to deal with people even though how wretched we are. And so the title of today's sermon is called Two-Way Grace. Two-Way Grace. Everybody say Two-Way Grace. Two-Way Grace. grace. And this is important. I want you to know this. Two-Way Grace is something that must be reciprocated and not just stated, okay? Grace must be something that is reciprocated 
and not just stated. So we're going to read chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who was caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law Moses commanded us, we're supposed to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence so that they could accuse him. Jesus just stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one who is without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued to writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and from now on, sin, don't sin anymore. Now, as we read this passage, before we dive into this, I have to, by good conscience, let something be known because I, I am wholeheartedly um, with the 100% accuracy of Scripture. Some of you know I've been to seminary, I got a master's degree, I got a doctorate, and I want to state this, it's very important, that most modern translations, if you read it, and some of you guys might have got confused by this, but you read it, and you see this, along with a couple more, have parentheses around it. Like, why do they have parentheses? Sometimes it's even in, in different texts, like, like fonts. Because this text, chapter 8, or excuse me, 753, which is the verse before this, through 811, was not found in the earliest of manuscripts found. Now, you ever wonder why that is? Like, how come this and the end of, of Mark 16, how it's here and it's in parentheses because it wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts? Why, why is it still in there? Well, you might even wonder, well, how do we know then that the Bible is 100% true? I have. Well, because we believe the Bible is 100% true. It's the reason why they are there. It's the reason which doubles down and makes it so much more true. Because of the fact that when King James in 1611 used the best that they could to come up with, and they put the Bible out at that time, later on we had the Dead Sea Scrolls and more findings of earlier manuscripts that were lined up right around with Scripture. So we know that it's true, but because they weren't at the earliest manuscripts, we have to put the parentheses because we believe in 100% truity of Scripture. Now, is this a great teaching? Yes. Is there anything unworthy of sound doctrine in this? No. Matter of fact, 
Most scholars believe that this did happen in Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth. It just wasn't in the original Gospel of John. So let's glean now. Verse 1 through 3. Then each one went to his own house. Now, now this is kind of important because they previously they were at the festival of tents. And then there was a meeting with the Sanhedrin that was arguing about this guy named Jesus, who was the most unpopular person on the planet, if he was really Messiah, if he was really the one that the Jewish people had been waiting for their whole lives. And he said each one went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount Olives, and at dawn he went to the temple again. You see, it's kind of like a parody of words there. As each of the men went to his own house, Jesus ended up later going to the temple after he spent the night in the Mount of Olives where he used to, used to go after Passover. Does anybody remember that there was a gospel about Jesus when he was young? And, and, and Mary thought that they, they forgot about Jesus. They started going back home. And they're like, oh, it's like, it's like home alone. Oh, uh, where's Jesus? Wow, that was weird. <laughs> and they found him in the temple courts. And where did Jesus say that he went to, that he was in? It was in his father's house. That was his home when he was with his father. And at dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach. You know, it's crazy back then, like, I was going to sit down. Back then, it was the opposite of what you see sermons today. Here, when you go to a, a regular 2000 church service, you'll see the preacher standing up and everyone else sitting down. But in Jesus' time, it was the exact opposite. The teacher would actually sit down and everybody else would stand up. I know for some of you, if I asked you to do that, you'd probably get mad at me right now. I don't want it. My feet hurt. I've been working all week. Well, he asked them to do this, and it says in verse 3, then the scribes and the Pharisees, which were part of the Sanhedrin. This is important to know. The Sanhedrin was, was a three-part group. The scribes, the Pharisees, and a group called the Sadducees. And they were very, very political. Okay? They were claiming to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, but their life did not mark the fruit. They were the ones who Israel would look at as their pastors, or, or even if you were Catholic, the pope but their lives did not mark the fruit. Matter of fact, their teachings didn't either. And he said, then the scribes, woman caught, or the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery, making her stand right in the center. Now, normally they, they probably wouldn't come out this early because literally dawn came and Jesus went to the temple court and started teaching. So that's the setting. We're, we want to know that. It's important the setting is no, we're in the temple courts. And Jesus is teaching the people, and the Sanhedrin, they come here, and like I said, normally they wouldn't wake up this early unless they had a motive, unless they had some intention, and their intention was, was they were trying to catch Jesus up. And so they bring him up right in the center, right in the middle. I mean, imagine this. Imagine I'm here right now, and I'm teaching this passage, and I'm preaching, and, and Neil was to come out with three other people, 
and a woman and bring them right to the center of the stage, right in front of everybody, and say, hey, everybody, Sean, what would you do? You know, back when I was young, we had a, a phrase for people like that. We called them Hollywood. Like, why you got to act Hollywood? Why you got to make this some big thing? Why don't you just do it one-on-one? Now, these people said they were men of God. But they weren't reciprocating what they were teaching. So if you're taking down notes, I want you to write this. This is the first point, okay? Hypocrites of grace. Hypocrites of grace. Everybody say this. Read after me. I am a hypocrite of grace. That's honest. We all have been like these people at some point in our lives, especially as Christians who have been Christians. The longer we're Christian, sometimes it can have a, a, an aspect to kind of steer us where we think we're better than others, where we look at that person in the midst of their sin and we're like, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that person. When we forgot where God had brought us from. You know, I was a little discouraged this morning. I was putting up the last little things of the sermon and was getting ready for church. And I was talking to my wife. And I was like, you know, babe, I'm, I'm, I'm discouraged this morning. So I went and, you know, finished getting ready. And she sends me this text from a guy named Michael Jr., who I love. And this, this quote, which I love too, it says, when you know your why, your what becomes more clear and impactful. See, for my why is I know what God has done in my life, and sometimes I just need to remember that before I go do something in his name. And I encourage all of us, we need to do the same thing when we walk out these doors today, is remember our why. So verse 4 says, Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked this so they may trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Now, is this an example of a spiritual leader? To... Not pull someone one away. I mean, if you read Matthew 18, it kind of explains the, the, the way we're supposed to approach problems. But this one right here, they woke up early with this woman that they didn't even have. To, matter of fact, let, let's, let's get some clarity about the context of the law so you can really understand this verse a little bit. The question is, why, was, why did they bring this woman, not the man? According to Jewish law, when they're caught in the act, both are supposed to get killed. So why did they not bring her? Did the man bribe them so, so they wouldn't have to come? Did, did he do something so he could be excused? We don't know, but what we do know that the accusers, these religious leaders, were extremely anxious to humiliate her because they could have brought her either one-on-one -on -one to Jesus or they didn't have to bring her to ask this question. But because they woke up so early in the morning at dawn, didn't even drink their coffee, went and snatched up this woman. Come on, everybody. Right in front of, couldn't even wait till the sermon was over. Right here, Jesus, she was in front of everybody. This woman was caught in adultery. Everyone, look at how 
sinful, how bad, how immoral she is. And we're not. They must have really, really wanted to do this. I mean, that's something you don't normally just wake up and do. And with verse 4, it says, Teacher, the woman was caught in the act of adultery, and according to Moses' law, well, the truth is that Moses' law, they twisted it a little bit. Which most of the times, when they ever went to question Jesus, they would twist the law. It was only guilty if she was a, or only guilty of that form of death if she was a betrothed virgin. Well, betrothed is something like, you guys know when, you get, when, when you're engaged to someone? It's like that, but it's a lot more serious. It's so serious that you need a divorce. Remember uh, Joseph and Mary? They were betrothed. They weren't married yet. That's why she was a virgin. But it said the Bible said that he was going to divorce her quietly. It's something that was in that standard. Something different from today. But here's something that is so important that I want you to know. This whole time, Jesus never denied her sin. So even though we do two-way grace, it's so important that she said today, we have to acknowledge our own sin. Jesus didn't deny her sin. Now, we're going to go further in that with this grace thing, because sometimes we, we can look at grace as something like we have this license of grace. We can sin it all we want because we're saved by grace, but it actually gives us an obligation. But with the questions, they try to put Jesus in a pickle. You see, one, if he refused to confirm the death penalty, then they can charge him with violating God's law, and they could condemn him. Two, on the other hand, if he confirmed it, he would lose his reputation for compassion. One scholar noted that he also could have been incited or charged with the Sanhedrin independent law. What does that mean? Well, in Rome, Rome gave Sanhedrin power, political power, Roman Empire, said, we'll let you handle your own matters with your own religion. They gave them that freedom. But the one thing they couldn't do is put somebody up for execution. That's why they had to send him to Pilate. And so Jesus gets put in a situation But the important part is he doesn't acknowledge his sin. And because he's smart, he can see all. He gets down and starts writing on the ground. Now, these rude people, they were not examples. They weren't reciprocating the same law that they loved the state. Number three, don't ever forget where you come from. 6B. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him because he wasn't answering, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard him, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Now, some suggest 
that he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Some suggest was something that I would tend to go for, even though we don't know exactly, is that he was literally writing down their own names and their own sins. But they couldn't get an answer, so they kept trying. But when he told them that, when he said those words, the one who is without sin should be the first to throw a stone at her, even though I'm not a big fan of the King James Version. I like that translation better. <laughs> Cast thy first stone. It sounds so much better. That's something that we have to remember. We can't forget where we come from. Sometimes, and I've been a victim of this, becoming a pastor. Why can't this person get it together? I, I've, I've walked with this person. They keep on messing up over and over and over again. Why can't they get together? Now, as I was doing this, I was thinking of times where I couldn't get it together. Where I was struggling in the midst of my sin. And over and over again, I would try and I would pray and say, God, can you please take this from me? And later on that day, I'd mess up again. It's just people didn't know about it. And so when we are with people, not saying dealing with people, when we're loving on people, we must always, when we're looking at their sin, we got to first remember and acknowledge ours. And even if we don't do that sin anymore, we still have to remember that I was once like that too. We don't dismiss their sin. We don't say, hey, you know what? It's okay if you sin. Like there's some sins right now that people, whether your family member is committing this sin, so it's like you love them, or whether, you know, the culture is promoting this sin, or whatever it is, there's some sins that we can say, oh, you know what? It's okay. It's not that bad. But God loved the people but he hated their sin. So what does that mean? How does that mean for us as Christians when we leave this church and we start addressing people, when we start addressing ourselves? Does that mean we start looking at people and pointing out all their sins and confronting them and saying, look what this person did. They committed adultery. Look what this person did. They watched porn. Look what this person did. They're living a homosexual lifestyle. Look what this person did, strung off of heroin. Look what this person did. He argued with his wife. Look what this person did. Or do we do like Jesus? And remember, I was a wretch too. Matter of fact, let's break out this table right here. I'm going to put a plate right here for the, for the uh, adulteress. Put a plate right here for the homosexual. Put a plate right here for the drug addict. Put a place right here who is arguing with his wife. Put a place right here for whatever I'm doing today. I'm not gonna say your sin's okay, your sin's okay, your sin's okay. No, they're all they're all not okay. But I love you because you're my brother or sister. And so let's sit down at the table and let's eat. And let's walk through this together and see what God has a plan for your life and for mine. Number seven, when Jesus said this, it also disarmed them because the translation means without any sin. So it really disarmed them. They were like, whoa. And maybe because God can change hearts, maybe God changed their heart and their mind, I think, and remind them of their own sin. And so they thought about it and it said, all of them left. <laughs> 
Well, the qualification for throwing a stone prevented them from doing it. None of them met the requirements, and neither do we. Now, I got to say this, side note, because what's going to happen is if I don't say this, people are going to leave. And Pastor Sean said, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Nope. Oh, you point out something I did? Nope, 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 nope. Tupac said it too. No. There's a difference between judging, which is condemning, and holding somebody accountability, which is lifting up and encouraging. And that's what we're supposed to do. Verse 8, when it says, he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only one was left at the center. A lot of people think that either the older men, the reason why they left first was because they were a little wiser. Some people, which I tend to could be a little both, I also think that, hey, the more experience you've got in life, <laughs> the more you've been through, the more you've done, the more you messed up. And so they started seeing, wow, like I, I've done a whole lot in my life. Yeah, I really can't throw a stone. You know what? I'm out of here. And so Jesus looks at the woman when it's only him and her. You know, she kind of brought up one of my points. My son does that too. My daughter especially. Like, she'll do something wrong, and then you put her on timeout. I'm sorry. No, go on timeout. But I said I'm sorry. Like, that's supposed to fix everything. I said, well, when you say you're sorry, you're not supposed to do it anymore. Because what she does, she does that. She says she's sorry. She goes in there. You let her out, and she does it right back over again every day. How many people have young kids or have had young kids in their life? You know, we tell them, why don't you listen? Why do I have to tell you over and over again? We act like they're supposed to learn the lessons that we learned in life, and they haven't experienced half of what we've been through. They're still growing and learning right now as we speak. So we got to sit back and remember and show a little grace. Don't mean that when they mess up and they hit you in the face, you're supposed to say, oh, yeah, do it again. No, you're wrong for that. But you got to go show grace. And you take their hand and you walk through this journey called life together. That's what the Christian walk is for us as believers with everyone from people in our church who we call family, and we're supposed to do life with and engage with to the people we meet, our neighbors in the community, to see them, meet them where they're at, not where they need to be at. Because we're not, all right, let's be honest, we are not where we need to be at. I am not where I need to be at. So as Christians, we need to remember, come to God and remember, the two-way grace is something that we can't just talk about. We can't just say because it sounds good. And with grace comes obligation. See, Jesus is about to show us in this last part. I really want you to pay attention. Because all the stuff I said is cool, and it's true. But now Jesus is going to show us, now what? Now what do we do? If you notice this whole time while the accusers, these spiritual leaders, were doing things the wrong way, 
Jesus is going to show us the right way. Verse 10 through 11. When Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. She answered, neither do I, con-, or he answered, neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. See, the accusers were only interested in destroying her. They weren't interested in saving her at all. They weren't interested in building or lifting her up and encouraging her to say, you know what, you messed up, but now God's got a new plan for you, and you can get in that, and life can change, things can change. No. They were actually acting like Satan. That's what Satan does. The word means accuser. Look what he did. Look what Howard did. Every time I see it, look, look what he did. He's always messing up. And Jesus looks at her. Did not say that she was innocent. Did not vouch for her and say, you know what? It's okay to do what you're doing. But in a sense, metaphorically, he sat at the table with her. He gave her motivation and assurance. He said, neither will I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. He saw her sin, and he freed her from that. But then he said, do not sin anymore. Some of us, including myself, look, I'm going to say myself. I've been freed from my sin. God rocked my world. But I still sin every single day, either in words, action, or deed, in some way, some form, some fashion. Even though we've been freed, we still have this way of staying in the midst of our bondage. How many here can relate to me when you say that you've struggled getting out of bondage even though Jesus set you free? Raise your hand. How many of you struggle each day with not sinning? Raise your hand. Now, how many people in here have looked at someone else and thought, at least I'm not like that? Raise your hand. That's what Jesus was trying to get the point that. That's the whole point of the sermon. It's called two-way grace. What we receive, we must give out. We don't acknowledge it, or excuse me, we, we don't say it's okay. We don't conform. We understand, because we've been in our own mess too, and we show grace, and we help walk with them. It's forgiveness. Jesus didn't neglect the Mosaic law. By, by standing there in the middle of the woman and her sin, he never neglected it. He just put the cross between it. Remember what I said. This Bible is just one big love story. 
about how much God loves us, but at the same time, how much he hates our sin. And so we need to accept that and move forward. Jesus gave the example of two-way grace that we need to accept ourselves and show unto others. Because when we leave here today, if grace is not reciprocated from our lives and it's just something that we say, then we're acting like a hypocrite, an actor, somebody that's faking the funk, just like these people that said they were religious leaders and men of God. So you have a choice. And we're going to end this. This is the question I want you to ask yourself. When you leave today, I want you to make a decision. Are you going to be a hypocrite? Which by saying that is, you know what? I'm not going to see my own sin or I'm going to point everybody else's out or are you simply just going to say, God, I'm a mess. Use me how you will and let me love on the other people in messes too because just like he died for me, he died for you. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for giving us so many chances in life. Even after salvation, we just kept messing up. We keep on messing up. We continue to mess up. But you still show us that grace. You already knew all the things we were going to do wrong even before we were born. But you still show us that love. So today, Father God, use your words to Convict our hearts that we may reciprocate your love to others like you have showed to us. And let us not just be hypocrites, but let us be so passionate about it that maybe today we reach out to someone and just say hello and get to know them. Let us love our neighbor and continue the mission that you have set for us. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.